0: Head to thenextreel.com slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since
1: 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Finally, finally, I get to do that.
1: Can I ask you a question?
0: Can you ask me a question?
1: I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. What do you think of the, okay, imagine, just paint yourself this picture, okay?
0: (laughs) I love it when you ask me to paint
1: things. (laughs) Imagine you're an executive at United Artists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, And your poster designer comes in with a new poster design for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and the tagline they put on there is. (laughs) (laughs) I know where you're going. I do. I I don't know. I don't know. There's there's two there's two (laughs) options here. First, a fistful of dollars. Then, for a few dollars more, this time the jackpots are cool two hundred thousand dollars. Five of the West's fastest guns say, "Come and get it." (laughs) What would you say to that person?
0: I would say, say, just again, just again, (laughs) do it again. 'Cause that's not right. How many guns are there? Is, there, is it five? Is <laughs> it five men? But did five you see the on? did you see the one that was all about the the, the
1: the last two were just practice? Well that's that you know yeah. for three men war wasn't hell. Yeah. It was practice. It was
0: practice.
1: <laughs> it's like, you know, and then they just said, Oh just print them all. What yeah. <laughs> <Not> the heck? <laughs> Uh, um,
0: that's awesome. <laughs> I take it you've been working through the Pinterest gallery. What I have doing? Been,
1: I've been Pinteresting. Can I, can I use that as a verb now? Pinteresting?
0: Pinteresting? I don't know. I think they're, I'm not sure the uh, Gerundic Statute of Limitations has passed on that.
1: Well, you know, if, if they'll put literally in their dictionary, <laughs> <laughs> then you sure can do that. That's right. Oh, <laughs> man. I'm going to write to them. How's your week? you see anything good? I, you know, I did not. <laughs> it, was, it was a week of uh, this epic and uh, Game of Thrones and prepping for class. So. Oh,
0: yeah, you start teaching again. See, I'm about to go on break. I just finished summer session. Mm. Yeah, I got a few it,
1: weeks off. That's nice. I had a few months off for my summer session. Mm. That was really nice.
0: Now you're showing off.
1: Uh-huh. That's right.
0: Um, So, yeah, I didn't see anything either, though. I mean... Insofar as I was about to try and show off a little bit, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> Mostly because this movie's like seven hours long, so I had to watch it over seven days.
1: But <laughs> that, that sounds like biblically epic. I was gonna <laughs> say and I didn't even get a day off.
0: <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there?
1: That, was, that I was dropped genius. a morricone
0: on you. Uh, oh. You've been morriconed. Uh, um let's see so uh you your kids have already been in school for like a month now right yeah i think three weeks yeah, yeah see so our start next week god man really yeah yeah so we're ready for that we're yeah. so ready for that. <laughs> that yeah so then i'll be able to start doing my secret um secret movie nooners again mm-hmm, yeah i have yeah. a whole summer off where i haven't been able to do movie nooners i have a great job <laughs>
1: it sounds like that sounds like it
0: shall we uh tell the people where we're from
1: yeah where are we from
0: hey everybody it's the next reel my name is pete Wright. that there is andy nelson hey and we spoil movies thank you once again for putting your movie spoilage needs in our careful hands uh tonight we are going to be wrapping up our no-name trilogy with 1966 the good the bad and the ugly the man with the poncho returns uh but first you should find out more about the show you head over to the you can learn all about the show you can see all of our past episodes join this conversation on facebook.com slash the next twitter.com slash the even google plus if you can find us over there we're there we're posting over there and now Catching us up on the Instagram, hashtag guest the movie, hashtag pony prize challenge, Andy versus the people. You had kind of a week.
1: (laughs) I don't want to talk about it.
0: (laughs) You, man, you, we, let me just step back. It is a, we have a special niche audience, people who are able and willing to sit, listen to us talk about one movie for more than an hour each week. That's a very dedicated kind of movie audience. And that movie audience, I think you, uh, I think you forgot that who they were
1: You <laughs> pick this movie. <laughs> is that fair? You know, I, I know that Donnie Darko is, has <laughs> intense fans. I, I do know that. And uh, but, and I was really trying to pick really obscure images. I mean, I, I thought I, you know, had a hard time on 16 Candles, but Donnie Darko, it's just like, okay, well, here's two ladies walking down the street. It's a quick shot in the movie. No one's going to know. But, man, was I wrong. Uh, I don't know if it's JB or J by 86. Uh, nailed it right out of the gate. First image. And uh, yeah, that kind of uh, killed the rest of the week. So, <laughs> but congratulations to JB86 who is entered to win our pony prize uh, for skunking me hardcore this week on the guess the movie pony prize <laughs> challenge.
0: Introducing a week long sucking sound into the <laughs> our Instagram channel. Ah uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It was awesome. Oh, just yeah. awesome. Well, I uh, I look forward to this week because I have a feeling you you you've probably been stewing for a whole 7 days. It's going to be something from 1919. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, it's really just a bunch of pictures of the piano player <laughs> playing the mo- playing music for the silent film and we're not going to show you anything from the film itself. Uh, try me now, movie nerds. Uh, take that. <laughs> i love it that's awesome i uh, i think from there you should redeem yourself by doing a trailer for an awesome film
1: my trailer this week is for uh well i mean leading into the the i don't know if we'd call it a series but the movie we're going to be talking about (laughs) next week uh, jason reitman's movie we're having a little holiday break with labor day and uh you know his new film is coming out uh, later in uh, October, and it's called "Men, Women, and Children." The trailer came out and it looks really good. It looks like um, a very interesting exploration of a group of you know interconnected stories of people who uh, and, and their world of modern communication through texts and emails and uh, ims And just the way that people communicate and don't communicate. And uh, it looks really interesting. Um, The cast looks really exciting. The fact that Diablo Cody is not involved excites me uh, quite a bit. (laughs) Um, The thing that makes me nervous is that Adam Sandler is in it. And uh, notoriously, I'm not uh, a fan of his. Even when he tries to do the straight roles, um, I am generally not a fan of his. I think the only times that I've, I've, there have been a few times I've liked him. Uh, you yeah, a couple of the Drew Barrymore movies, but hmm. that may be all that wow. may be all. I'm I think I may like gonna, it more than you. Yeah, you may. I, and I'm not going to judge the movie on the fact that Adam Sandler's in it. I'm going to judge it on that. It's a Jason Reitman film, and it, it looks like something that is very intriguing that uh, looks like it could be a really powerful film. So I am quite excited for it. And uh, uh, yeah.
0: I I think it looks interesting. I you know, I am I'm really torn on it because I'm I'm excited about it because it looks very interesting and I I love the idea of taking um sort of interpreting uh interface on screen, you know, and I I think it it's really Sherlock. I think that's been credited with Doing texts on screen, the BBC Sherlock, and and it was a really novel convention actually putting text messages on screen, um, and that has since been sort of taken by, um, you know, House of Cards. They do it like a, David Fincher started doing that in season one of House of Cards, and and this movie now you get full blown like interface, like here dragging Finder windows around, like it's it they kind of go all the way, so such that the technology itself, the interface, the user interface becomes, uh, very much a character on screen, and I I'm really interested to see how they do that. but the downside of the film is it just, you, you sort of get this vibe that it's another uh, movie that's demonizing uh, technology beh- that's behind a cultural shift. And, uh, you know, I worry that people are going to watch it, and it, it, of course it's going to come out with all the, all the pundits are going to come out saying, you see what's happening? Look, this movie is just reflecting what's happening, and it's everything's terrible, and people don't talk anymore, and so, suicide, and terrible <laughs> darkness, you know, so. I don't <laughs> bad, know. That, bad, that, bad. Uh, that just yeah, bad, 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 and that just feels like a, like. I just I'm I'm ready to be entertained, and I I hope we can I hope we can keep it at that.
1: Well, um, it, it it has that look of the the balance between you know I mean how do you communicate and I think that's you know I I don't think it necessarily needs to be a story about communication to be telling a story about people dealing with communication problems, you know. Uh, And I'm hoping that it does find that balance where it's just about people not being able to communicate and it's not focusing on the technology, even though, like you said, it very blatantly is um, emphasizing the technology in the way that it is designed. And I find that also very intriguing because it is based on a novel. And so it's like, how how did that work in the novel? Well, I mean, to be fair, the novel
0: was a pop-up book, so... (laughs) <laughs> no. Uh you know it really I mean it's like you know it's it's practically american beauty with text messages you know I mean it really has that same sort of vibe to it and I, I you know so I'm I'm really interested like you said but I, I and and I think that's the right perspective but boy this trailer is is tech dominant uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to hard to take that any other way
1: Well yeah exactly and I think that was the focus of the trailer I mean sure. there's no there's no speaking in it it's just that um, uh, beautiful rendition of whatever that song is and then the uh the all the Images of the, the the texting and the uh, words on the screen. Right, right. When does so. it uh, when does it hit? Uh, October seventeenth looks like.
0: Very nice, men, women, and children.
1: Jason, mm-hmm. All right.
0: mine is uh, you know I I don't know what to make of this uh, of this film, but I feel like I've been following it uh, for the better part of a year. Um, Fans of the Daily Show with John Stewart will remember when he took off and and left for three months to go uh, to the Middle East and film uh, and his first shoot his first movie as director and uh, that film is uh, the trailer is finally out for that film it's called Rosewater uh, directed by John Stewart written by John Stewart based on the book by Maziar Bahari um, stars Gail Garcia Bernal uh, Sore...
1: Ad, Suresh,
0: Ad, Suresh Adashloo. Yeah. Adashloo. okay, yeah. and other people I can't pronounce, but very talented people. Um, the The story is a true story based on Bahari's uh, experiences. He was a Canadian uh, journalist, um, a journalist with Canadian citizenship, I should say, uh, working for um, Newsweek covering the elections and— um, because he raised his camera uh, during a uh, a protest he was uh, arrested and so it's it's his story of of uh, imprisonment uh, in iran uh, it looks it looks good it really i mean it looks good but i can't help getting this feeling that it's it might just be a little bit too feel good is that
1: <laughs> right? it, it, well it does feel that way a little bit um, it's hard to say, but I mean, I know what you're going for. It, it does seem like it's that sort of, you know, uh, overcoming adversity sort of, uh, the, that kind of theme.
0: Right. Right. That, that's what I'm, that's what I'm a little bit nervous about. Like, uh, you know, I, I want it to be, a, um, you know, I, I, I want to see the adversity. I don't necessarily want to see the end of breakfast club. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm very, very curious to see it. And, uh, I think it looks, uh, uh, I, I love that. Stewart did this. I really do, and and uh, as a result, I mean, I'm absolutely going to be in on it uh, right at the beginning. It comes out November seventh, two thousand fourteen.
1: Coming from John Stewart, you think that he would perhaps avoid that you would type think? of storytelling and just really kind of go for the the more gritty story. But then yeah. again, it is a biopic, so yeah, yep. maybe that's maybe he really does maybe it does end like the end of Breakfast Club,
0: fist in the air and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll we'll see. So anyway, uh, November, uh, on the lookout for Rosewater trailers on the website, thenextreel.com. And I think that's it now.
1: (laughs) Now we better watch out for those five guys.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's watch out for them. All of them. Two guys we've never even seen. That's (laughs) right. They're hiding in the tumbleweeds.
1: (laughs) The good. The bad. Uh The Ugly. The Blue. The Grey. The Civil War. The Good. The Bad.
0: The Ugly. The Questions. The Answers. The Showdown. The Reason. The goal. Hey, this is a big one, right? This is the big one—the iconic. Wah, wah, wah. I've been waiting for this one the whole time. I feel like I really—I mean, I've been like every Morricone riff. I want to do that, but I've been—I have been consciously holding myself back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is like the. Western theme to end all Western themes. It is. That's exactly what it is. And in a way, it's kind of like the 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 main theme that Morricone wrote that may be better known than any of his other themes. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but it it feels that way because it is such. This is like one of those themes that has gone far and beyond. The uh, the actual place of the film that it was made in. And it's just kind of become a theme that is integrated into, uh, you know, people's subconscious, much like the the um, the violin stabbings in Psycho, you know, that re
0: re re Yeah. But you know what's funny about this one? It's been it is so it is so transcended the film that it is now representative of we- the West. Right it it is the the theme of the western whereas when you hear the violin stabbing you you think of crazy psycho right i mean i think well, that
1: but but i but i think it, it i think it also has transcended because i think you could also like in any sort of anybody stabbing somebody you know like in any film you can kind of picture that sound it's it is that kind of crazy psycho horror sound
0: okay well I, what i'm saying is i think there are more people who hear the Morricone thing and don't know it's from this movie or any movie than people who hear the violin stabbing
1: that's entirely possible
0: that's my that's my pitch i'm gonna
1: hang it up Uh, hey i think it sounds like a good one Mm -hmm.
0: this one uh is a much longer film uh, especially especially
1: the director's cut
0: yeah so let's see they come in there do you have it handy the links this one what was the? how long was the one you watched
1: I watched the 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 one that is I think the only version that is has been released since they created the extended cut, um, back Just under in three the hours, mid right? the mid 90s. Right, it was uh, uh I think it's like two hours and fifty seven minutes or something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's me too. And uh, and so it it is. Um, well, I'm going to let you start. I feel like I've, I I uh, started the last couple, but I I'm I feel like it is a, a yet again a a an appreciable maturing on the part of Leonian team.
1: It's a it's a a brilliant film. I think this um, may be my favorite of his films. Um, you know, I don't know if it's his best film. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it is his best film. I I think that this is uh, such a Fun film to watch. I think he, he definitely continues maturing as a filmmaker as he progresses, continuing to make uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, A Fistful of Dynamite, and Once Upon a Time in America. He continues progressing and maturing. But here, it also it, there's just so much fun going on in this film. And... The later films don't seem to have quite as much fun. They seem to be take, taking things a little more seriously. Um, and this one, just the characters are so rich. And just the introductions alone... I mean, look at the the opening half hour of the film where we get to meet the uh, first, the ugly, and then the bad, and then the good. And we get to kind of just meet these, these wild characters. Um, it, it, he has a way of creating these indelible characters that just... Uh, you know, it's almost... I mean, like we've talked about it before, they're not necessarily defined by the names, or the the, the titular names, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I and mean, the good certainly is not always good. The ugly, I mean, he's really is kind of the most lovable one in the film. And uh, the bad, I mean, okay, I will say that he definitely is pretty bad. But he also has his moments where he, you know, kind of shows some heart. And so it's it's interesting the way that Leone is always playing with that. But still, he just creates these characters, these these iconic Uh, Personas that have Kind of taken over the idea Of you know What you can do in a western And as he has done in all Three of these films he's just continued to um, Use his love for The westerns that he used to watch And he's uh, Kind of created his own kind of wild and crazy rock and roll version of the Western. And that in so many ways ended up influencing um, so many of the Westerns and just so many other films that that were to come after that. And I think Leone, uh, aside from that, also developed this amazing cinematic style. And he really, really fine-tuned it here, watching the way that he composed his shots. The opening shot is just a perfect example where you go from this gorgeous, wide vista of of the... Southwestern countryside shot in Spain, um, and then all of a sudden, a <laughs> this yeah. this extreme close up of a figure like moves right into the frame, kind of like pops up from the side, and all of a sudden you go from this extreme wide shot to this extreme close up, and I think that's like a perfect way to kind of define the way that Leone. Uh, would direct his films you know he just loved the the you know the back and the forth of this of this wide expanse and these these extreme close-ups and he just explored that way creating this new cinematic language that was big I mean it was a very big style and and it said a lot and it uh, you know paired with the actors that he brought in and the look that he created and the music uh, I mean he really did kind of redefine what it was to be a western and and gave filmmakers a lot of exciting new ways to put a film together.
0: I uh, totally agree. Um... Back to your first comment, uh, whether or not this was his greatest film, I, I may be in the minority. I do love this film, I really do, and I had a great time watching it again. Um, I don't like it as much as for a few dollars more. Uh, and so, in terms of the three of them, this one is is uh, doesn't hold up to the the kind of emotional connection that I had with the uh, uh, with the characters in the first or in the second film, and and that really surprised me, given the uh, the attention that this film gets in critical circles. Um, so. That's the first point. Now, I also think that you do see Leone having a great deal more fun with the camera in the film. Not just this—you know—he he loves to play with these sort of visual angles. There's a lot more sort of handheld work in this in this film. You know, you feel like you're—he's taking more risks with where he puts the camera, not just on the ground, but really these wonderful handheld tracking shots. And it just felt like I was—I was much more involved, like a part of the conversation with Good, Bad, or Ugly, um, as we made it through this um, this their journey uh, across the. Italian Spanish West. (laughs) Right. Uh, So so I had a a great time with that. I also love his sense of visual symmetry. Right. There is much has been said about the uh, you know about the the standoff at the end the trio at the end of the film which I'm sure we'll talk at at, uh, some length about later. But uh, you know you mentioned that initial sequence uh, in the opening of the film and I find that a wonderful bookend to the end sequence as well. So you, the film opens, you know, we're on this tight shot of, uh, you know, this character who interrupts the frame and then we are introduced again or, or first uh, to Leone's uh, use of the camera in setting the stage around this this uh you know around this building, but he doesn 't coddle to us right as the viewer he doesn't uh, he doesn 't attempt to give us so much that he's he 's walking us through the sequence, so you don 't know um, you know as he is cutting back and forth back and forth between these the, these riders into the scene uh, that come in at a distance and the guy that we met who jumped into the frame we don 't know at first that they are you know that they're all on the same uh, on the same team and they 're casing this um, you know this bar looking for the ugly. And so that's our introduction to the ugly, but it's also our introduction to Leone's wonderful um, you know, use of camera. Um and, and I think really gets us ready for some of the visual tricks to come. I, I deeply enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh no I was going to say and and also his uh the length of his shots you know that's something yeah. else we get like after we see that guy we cut to the wide shot of the town and we're on the shot for like 12 seconds as we watch a dog just kind of walk across the frame
0: right right very true and and uh y- you know one of the things that you you brought back into our Sphere of awareness was this, um, uh, the Max Tolene um, art of editing in The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. We'll put a link to this video. It's a, about a 14-minute video in the show notes. And, and he, he dissects this final sequence at mathematical detail. And I've been thinking a lot about that because this whole sense of, um, of threes is it at least appears to be incredibly important to Leone. I mean, when you look at all of his shots, they're in sort of, uh, you know, they're in some sort of factor of three, uh, the longer shots are 12 seconds or nine seconds, or the shorter shots are three seconds. And then when you get down into the, the standoff at the end, you get these, these one second little c- clips and quips, uh, jumping back and forth between these characters, but to really, uh, give us a sense of place, um, of these characters, none of which who really, uh, you know, like each other, um, it, it, it's, he does just a wonderful job of using the math of time uh, to bring us into the, the emotional connection with these characters.
1: Yeah, and and you know, we, I don't think we've talked about the editing that much in his films, but there is a, a lot of smart editing in the way that he does construct the stories that really ties in very directly with all of the camera work that he does, like just the amazing shots, knowing how to time all of that out. And yes, his films, as you watch them, kind of progressively get longer and longer. Um, at least in this trilogy, I mean, we definitely have gotten to the point where we've he, just watched the longest one of the trilogy. Um, but he's also he. You know, it's one of those things. He's he's allowing time for things to happen. And yes, it could be argued that a lot of that could be cut out and thinned out. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know. I don't find it boring. I find it um, just, you know, as somebody who's kind of welcoming welcoming us into this world that he has created and these characters, he's letting us enjoy the details and enjoy those moments. And when we do have, a, a you know, a two-and-a-half-minute standoff of just looking at people's faces and their you know itchy trigger fingers we're we're really exploring the psychology of these people as what they are trying to do and and that's what is interesting about how he uses that editing and, and the math of, of, you know, figuring out which shot to use when and how long each shot should be to explore what these characters are thinking and, and why are they thinking it and what is going to happen in this in this standoff. Who's going to shoot what and or who's going to shoot which person and who's going to draw first. And it, it's an amazing way to kind of explore that and build this amazing sequence that is, you know, I mean, I think it's one of the great edited sequences in cinema. It's just, so stunning to go back and watch that film it's like 65 shots or something like that from from the first wide shot to the last wide shot and looking at the way that he he constructs that to create a moment that just has this tension that builds and builds all through it to that final climactic moment when the violence is over in a split second and it's i think it's it stands uh out as as a way to build tension to a moment that that doesn't need to last any longer you know
0: It is. And it's interesting. You know, um, I I think we learned so much about the characters that we've spent these last three hours with. Uh, We learn probably the most that we need to learn about them in this sequence, just in this uh, watching their movements, their twitches, their eye movements. And and, uh, to watch, in particular, Eastwood, knowing in hindsight that he has already essentially rigged the game. Uh, by essentially disarming one of the opponents. Uh, so, you know, he gets this uh, sort of one-upsmanship, but we don't know that at the time. He just looks so calm, so collected, so in control, and so powerful that at that point, it's his power at one end of this triangle that, uh, you know, ends up um, really diffusing the bad, right? And Ends up diffusing Lee Van Cleef as Angel Eyes, who is, uh, you know, really... I think at this point we see that he really feels like he is. He if if there are sides that are going to be drawn, they're going to be drawn against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the positioning on screen using the that full full frame, uh, that beautiful wide frame, um, the positioning of these three on on screen, I think is is a very powerful um, uh, punctuation to their what we learn about their characters.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's still though it, to me not the greatest scene in the film. Um, and uh, to me, that would be what happens next.
1: Mm, okay. Um,
0: I, and maybe it's because of just how much I adore
1: Eli Wallach in this film. It's hard not to love him. I mean, he is such a rascal and, uh, just, uh, I mean, he plays the bandit so perfectly. Uh, you know, he is kind of a despicable character, but he's just, you know, they, you talk about that whole, uh, save the cat. Uh, kind of theory of screenwriting that we've discussed before, and uh, you should, yeah, you she,
0: refresh refresh us. It's, it's been like a hundred episodes since we've talked. About
1: right, right. Yeah, it's the idea is you know you can write bad characters into your film, or you can have characters that your your audience is following, um, and they can be bad people. But as long as they do something good, like save a cat early on in the story, there's something that your audience can kind of latch onto. And that's the basic philosophy, and you see that in in some films. Um, this film. He doesn't really do anything that's out-and-out good. Um, There's nothing that I would say that that stands out as a save-the-cat moment. Um, but I would say that kind of what is that save the cat moment is just the the comedy that is built into his character. And as despicable as he is, he's not a character that that you just out and out hate because he is he is written in such a fun way. And, and Eli Wallach performs him with such zest and just this wild zeal that makes him somebody that you do care for. And you do want to see him make it through the end of the film because he's just he is kind of just like this this insanely crazy. Uh, fun bad guy that you that you're rooting for
0: he is and it, well you know let's step back just a bit so you, the relationship for those who haven't seen the film in a long time or, or have never seen the film um Essentially, this is a this is a a chase across the across the West film. These three characters the you know the the Mexican bandit born in Brooklyn, uh, played by Eli Wallach. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is the bad guy. He is this cunning, ruthless you know mercenary who's uh, an assassin. Uh, and uh, Clint Eastwood uh, plays you know the man with no name called in this film Blondie, also a bounty hunter um, you know who trades on his confidence, and these. Three men discover by turn of event turns of events that there is a case of gold a stash of gold that has been hidden in uh, in a in a grave and they each of them learns different different pieces different clues uh, to where the gold is and because they don't naturally give up those clues to one another uh, they end up chasing one another across the west to this uh, to their ultimate destination I don't know I feel like I sort of talked in circles around that did I, no. did I pretty much get it? Yeah, you pretty much got okay. it. So, uh, so the final sequence is the big standoff and uh, where the clues will be uh, you know, revealed, the, the particular grave that this is buried in, uh, the stash of gold is buried in, will be revealed, and somebody's going to walk away with it. Uh, and after the standoffs, after the violence, we, we see that you know our hero Blondie and um, uh, Eli Wallach, the uh, bandit, end up living, and they go to the gravesite. Now, at this point... Blondie, the good, at gunpoint, tells uh, uh, Tuco, the bandit, Wallach's character, to begin digging. Uh, they uncover the gold, and Blondie stands the bandit, stands ugly, on top of a cross, a gravestone, and wraps a noose around his neck and ties his hands behind his back. So if the, the cross, which is not stable, ends up toppling it all, uh, he will fall and hang himself. And then Eastwood's character uh, rides off across the plane. This sequence, to me, it's a long sequence of Tuco screaming Blondie, uh, and he gets louder and louder, even as he is suffocating, losing his balance. Uh, You can see him just sort of holding his... Head up with uh, by the weight of the noose, trying not to to topple over completely, knowing what will happen, and he keeps screaming, "Blondie, Blondie, Blondie, Blondie," um, and the, it cuts back and forth between his a close up on his face and again that long shot where all we see. I mean, there's no movement in the Blondie perspective, Blondie POV. Right? It's there's no movement in that camera. It's just. Every time we cut back to it, it's the horse riding further into the distance. Mm -hmm. Impossibly far. It's like a joke that goes way too long. Uh, Only after we, we have essentially lost hope that Blondie, it turns out, was not good after all. And that wouldn't necessarily be a surprise, given the nature of this film. Does he turn around and, with his crack marksmanship, pulls out his rifle, balances on his arm, which is holding the reins to a moving horse... In one shot, he, uh, he fires uh, at Tuco, cuts the rope, and Tuco falls face first into his half of the money. I was, I was just really, it, this was a gut-wrenching sequence to watch. And maybe it's because I've seen so many of the sort of, uh, uh, so many kind of dissertations on the standoff itself cool. that this sequence I found much more powerful to me.
1: Well, and what's interesting about it is they do kind of uh, – Leone and his writers ended up creating this almost like picaresque buddy journey of Tuco and Blondie as they work together, uh, sometimes separately, sometimes together, working to try to get this gold, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a very uh, – uh, the, the journey is, itself is very important, but but as as we – journey with these two characters we get to know the two of them and it does kind of you know we do see elements of their stories i mean in particular well uh, really tuco's story uh, you know kind of we get a little of his backstory um when he goes to visit his brother and then we um uh, we there's that great moment as as blondie kind of you know, he spies on them and, and gets a sense of where tuco's coming from and i think the way that that kind of builds into the relationship. I mean, obviously there was a lot of mistrust in the relationship, especially at the beginning, when Blondie essentially, um, you know, they've kind of created this this <laughs> precarious partnership as they as they, um, you know, rob from these towns basically by you know turning in Tuco, who's a wanted man and then Blondie frees him by shooting the news and, and, uh, after he's collected the reward, and then they split the reward. I mean, it's a great little uh, kind of thing that they've kind of created. However, the uh, um, it, it doesn't go well because Blondie decides it's not working for him so he dumps Tuco in the middle of the desert <laughs> and then and then Tuco manages manages to survive and then he does the same thing to Blondie and just as he's about to kill Blondie that kind of leads them to uh the clues that that put them on this big journey of theirs uh so clearly they have a a a very kind of rougher relationship in the beginning but after that moment um when Blondie kind of gets tapped into a little bit of Tuco's backstory I think there there is a little bit of change, and it seems like they're, they are working a little bit more together. And there is kind of this buddy relationship. Even though um, Tuco, if there is somebody who ends up being more trustworthy, it ends up being Tuco rather than Blondie. Tuco is the one who actually tells Blondie the truth when they're sharing their information with each other as they're strapping the dynamite to the bridge. Blondie lies to Tuco. So it's, it's this very interesting relationship between the two of them. But even at the ending, you get the sense that, okay, Blondie just never is going to quite trust Tuco again, but he's not going to kill him he's going to uh, he's going to at least put him in a situation where he can create a little distance between the two of them, so that okay, yes, it was very awful that he did that to to Tuko his quote unquote partner in this whole uh in this whole quest to get the money. But he did free him, and now he's separated separated enough distance between the two of them so that he can go off on his own and leave Tuco to his own uh, way of getting out. It's a very interesting relationship, but you're right. It does create that tension because you don't know what what the good, what Blondie is really going to do, because he's proven himself to not necessarily be good and not necessarily be trustworthy, but it is a great way that it ends because you realize, okay, he's not, he's not going to be the bad. He's not going to be the guy who just lets Tuco die standing there on that cross uh, out there in this, uh, in this cemetery. He actually is going to help him. So it it is a great moment. And the way that Leone builds that relationship over the course of the film um Leads you to really like both of them and like the relationship, but still be unsure as to where it's going to go, which you don't often see in buddy films
0: that's right and and I think what's so interesting about it to me is that you know when we look at the the actual sort of representation of the namesakes, right the symbolism of good, bad and ugly, uh good and bad tend to live up to their to to the judgment that we ascribe to their names right? Um, you know, one is very clearly bad. He is bad from the moment we re- we see him, he is an assassin and a traitor to, you know, any, to, to his own um, uh, integrity. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the, the one that we don't get any sort of um, any sort of character judgment is ugly. Like we don't ascribe any character judgment to, to ugly because we're not told if he's good or bad. We're only told that he's ugly. And right. you know, they make him, you know, uh, they go back and forth between making him just sort of like normal looking guy to looking really not great. Uh, but But we're left to wonder, when pushed, which direction will he go? And because he never really goes in a straight line... It makes him the most interesting character, I think, to watch because we're left to guess at every turn what is he going to do. And that leads to, this, to the march across the desert. I was really surprised by the march across the desert when he marches Blondie across the desert and makes Blondie super ugly. Uh, marching him across this, the blazing hot desert they get about 30 miles in and, he's just, and Eastwood is just, his skin is like melting off of his face. Um, I was surprised in this film that Ugly did that. Right, because even though he had been already marched himself, told to survive in the desert, uh, you know, on his own by Blondie, uh, I, I didn't expect him to exact retribution uh, in the, in that exact way. Because again, his he I was able to uh, withhold judgment uh, because he I wasn't told what he was, good or bad, you know, and so it was it was a nice surprise to watch him, um, you know, exact vengeance. Uh, in that way and take power back because by by nature of his name, he is put in a position of weakness. Yeah. Right. And to watch him take his power back in this way is an is an interesting and and kind of empowering turn from an, from an audience member's perspective who, you know, we all, I think, naturally take sides, you know. Right. Right. So I, I, I found that I found him really a, a terrifically interesting character to watch just just when you look at the symbolism of their own
1: names. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to hard to say, really, when you're watching the film, who really you're rooting for. Are you rooting for him more, or are you rooting for Clint Eastwood more? Because, uh, you know, Tuco is kind of a, a more indelible character that you enjoy so much more.
0: Well, I went to high school with both those guys, and I definitely would have been hanging out with Tuco. <laughs> Just saying. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, yeah, so Blondie played by Clint Eastwood in this film. uh, This was at the time this film. At the time he was offered the position for this film, neither of the two prior films had been released in the U.S. Right. Um, and they Leone talked him into it and gave him a Ferrari. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't think that um I mean I think he was really enjoying being in these films but he was um he also was kind of he had seen the Italian way of making movies and I don't think he completely trusted it and you know he definitely talked to uh Eli and Lee about what to expect when making these films and how you really have to keep your eye on things cuz they were a lot more um slipshod than than any US production that he'd been involved in up to that point. Uh and even on the set here, I mean Eli Wallach says there was at least three times where he was potentially nearly killed um, because they just weren't being very responsible filmmakers, you know. And it's—I it, mean—we laugh about it now. In you know, it's 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 definitely sad to think about in light of uh, recent events in here in the U.S. of indie filmmakers who were being irresponsible and ended up causing the death of a crew member. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it is a, a crazy business where people make these big decisions. And uh, you know, the director, uh, like one example, he really wanted to get that amazing shot of the train going by as as tuco is laying next to it and he's you know handcuffed to the dead guard who is um, on the other side of the tracks. And he, you know, Tuco is using the train as a way to kind of cut the chains. And he wanted, wanted to get the shot of, of uh, Eli lying right there in the dirt next to the train to show people that it was really him. But little did they know that this train had this little step on one of its cars. And had Eli just slightly lifted his head up, it, it would have smacked him, possibly killed him. Um, so luckily... You know that didn't happen, but it could have because they just they weren't paying attention. Yeah,
0: and, and it looks terrifying. I, like it just looks. Oh, it
1: does. You can you can feel that he's not. <laughs> he's not acting. <laughs> yeah. Right. No kidding. It just is. It's it's uncomfortable to yeah. watch that cause knowing that you know it's a real person that you know Eli is sitting there was the while this train zips by inches away from him. Exactly. Yeah
0: uh so that was uh so eastwood he he did say yes to the film and he did make this this final film in the trilogy um with again lee van cleef um taking up a new role after his um portrayal of the essentially the romantic lead in uh for a few dollars more
1: yeah and i i think it's great seeing lee van cleef uh in such a different role i mean clint eastwood's character the man with no name has really been very much the same character all through the three films and it's very interesting the way that his character is portrayed here he doesn't start off looking the same as he did in the previous two films but as you get toward the end of the film he ends up getting his poncho and the new hat and everything so it's almost like this film his character is almost like a lead-in to those other two films kind of creating this kind of circular uh story that uh, that uh, leone did um but which which Lang-
0: totally works, right? I mean that, that oh, it, is, it totally plays into his sort of sense of natural symmetry, and and really does work. And it's why you know our Amazon comment from I think two weeks ago was it uh, was somebody who saw the movie and then said she wanted to see for f- or the good, the Bag, the ugly as the first film. And I can totally see somebody making that mistake.
1: Yeah, right, because it does kind of feel like, oh, well, then he's been wearing a poncho, right. you know, the poncho that he got in the next two films. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's it's easy to see how somebody can make that mistake. But, I mean, he really is essentially the same character in all three films, hence the reason that United Artists was able to market it that way. Uh, Lee Van Cleef, though, I think really does a great job of, of changing it up quite a bit and going from somebody who is um, – He's a bounty hunter in for a few dollars more, but he there's a reason and he's got this uh this, you know, pursuit of this person who uh did him wrong, and you definitely feel more for him in that film. This film, he is just downright bad. I mean, he definitely goes the uh, uh John Marie Vellante route in this film. He's n- maybe not as crazy as uh, as uh, John is, but he is just as evil, I would say. Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, Jean-Marie Vellante brought um, a, a sense of just um, sociopathy to the role uh, mm-hmm. that Lee Van Cleef is, is more calculating. Um, uh, you know, you don't feel like he's as kind of wildly unpredictable as Vellante um, was no. in his first two roles. But, you know, it's interesting you bring him up that, uh, you know, it was originally uh, Vellante that Leone was considering for the role of Tuco. Uh, in this film, which would have been
1: bizarre. It would have been bizarre. I don't know if I could, I don't know. Having seen Eli in this role for you know, as many years as I have now, I just have a hard time picturing uh, picturing anyone else do it. And I know John can, can go that kind of crazy route. I mean, he definitely portrayed crazy a little bit in the last film. But I don't think it would go the same route. And, uh, you know, it, you get used to one role. You know, if if we had only known the Jean-Marie Volante uh, as Tuco story, then, you know, that, that would have been a different film and we would be talking about it. But I don't know. I, I really like that he went with Eli Wallach. I think he's a yeah. perfectly cast as the ugly.
0: I wonder if I wonder how much of of Eli Wallach's uh, performance grade I'm giving him in my own head is uh it really depends or hinges on the fact that he is uh you know such a new yorker playing a mexican bandit right Right. i mean it's just the the way he goes in and out of the accent and it's just i mean part of his oafishness is uh is in that weird sort of cultural concoction uh that that tuco becomes uh you know i i love it i do love it but i wonder if i'm if i give him too much
1: well, yeah, and, and to that point, I mean, this is one of those films that I, I don't know if I have uh, too many problems with the, with the uh, the nationalities or uh, the looks of anybody in it because, I mean, he, again, he is using people from from you know a, a wide swath of of cultural backgrounds to portray uh, you know people living in the Southwest, really, um, right. whether whether they're you know uh, soldiers or just kind of the, the kind of the cowboy characters and and oftentimes you look at some of these people and you go well he's clearly uh you know probably not somebody who I would normally see in a in a in a uh union uh, military outfit but okay I'll buy it because it's a Leone western and it it's a, it kind of creates this this mishmash fantastical version of the history and so the fact that Eli Wallach is playing this Mexican bandit I, I you know I don't I don't have too many problems with it because I mean he works so well in the role exactly
0: and that's why I, I i almost hasten to bring it up but it, it is there <laughs> it's, it is out there so right. many of the other you know the other characters they just sort of they fit the cultural model and he is he is one that stands out and i think the comedy comes from how well he stands out uh i think that's my that's ultimately the point
1: yes yes so,
0: all right um so those are the big three uh you know who else stands out to you in this film as, as somebody worth uh, that you want to talk about
1: well, you know, cast-wise, I mean, there's there are definitely faces that we've seen. Mario Brega, uh, Luigi Pistilli are, are some of the faces that we've seen in some of the last films. Um, but, you know, cast-wise, I, I think that it, this is one of those stories that because of the picaresque nature of the story, it is very, okay, we get a little bit of this character and then we get a little bit of this character because it's a journey story. You know, we're, we're getting—we're uh, not— getting the same character running through the film other than these three characters. Um, and so, yes, we get a scene with Pablo, Father Pablo Ramirez as Tuco's brother, played by Luigi Pistilli, which is a great scene. But, you know, it's it's a you know five-minute scene, and then we're out, and we don't come back there because they don't come back there. They're on their journey across New Mexico and into Texas. Right. And so, you know, to that point, I don't think any of the other performers... Uh, I mean, I think they're great and they do well in their roles, but none of them stand out uh, more than any of the others for me.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I was going to say the same. Uh, that was my feeling, right? That that so many of these other characters are so transient. Uh, you know, we don't get any characters like, um, uh, you know, oh my goodness, who was he? He was the guy in the train whose bed was next to the train tracks. What was his name? Piero Piro?
1: Or yeah. He was Piero Piero in, in Fistful of Dollars. In Fistful right. of Dollars,
0: yeah. But right. we, don't, we don't have any of those performances that stand out so much, even though they are small. Uh, I, I think because they are such transient characters in the film, and the film is so long, like over the, the sort of scope of the film, I do think. Who the the drunk captain? Yeah, uh, was that uh, Captain uh, Clinton? Is that right, Captain uh, Clinton, Aldo I mean? Aldo Griffray. Um The the whole, I I really like the way, and this I, maybe this is interesting, right? I really like the way they portray the Civil War um, in you know from this sort of European perspective um, mm-hmm. that it was it, it was a nonsense. Everybody was drunk. Uh, it was horribly frustrating and extremely repetitive uh and it was only by the grace of these thugs coming along who were willing to actually blow up the bridge that they had any sort of uh, you know respite from the the blood and battle of the civil war yeah there was something about that uh, about that exchange that that i found both uh comical and humanizing uh at the same time you know and and um um, you know, we've seen so much of the Civil War. We've seen so much, you know, so many uh, from whether it's from Ken Burns uh, and, and his fantastic work researching the Civil War to, uh, you, know, you know, glory to, you know, other you know, really interesting angles on the Civil War that, that are super dramatic. I, this one, I really, I really found myself uh, interested in the way they portrayed Captain Clinton, um, the drunk, as he's saying, you know, all we do, the only thing that we have in common with the other side— is we are soaked in alcohol. That, yeah. That's the only way we can get through, you know, who can get drunk enough that we can let go of the horror that we just have to tell these young men to go get themselves killed. And I, I thought that was a really nice kind of middle of the film punctuation. Um, so that made well, me happy. And-
1: Well, and that's something that, you know, speaking earlier of uh, Leone and his maturation as a filmmaker, that's definitely something that you do see in this film that you, I mean, like I've talked about in the last couple, how, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, mocking religion a little bit. This one, I think he actually is the first time he's really maybe trying to say something. And I, I feel like there definitely is more of him looking at the kind of the, the awfulness of war and, and that, 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 you know, these are just these horrible situations that happen that just kill so many people. And, you know, especially at a time, um, you know, shortly after World War II, when... Uh, you know, you you can tell these stories about just like the, the insanity of it and how crazy war is. And, and that scene in particular um, reminds me of Apocalypse Now when uh, there's the bridge scene where they're crossing this bridge and like all these people are fighting, these soldiers are fighting, but they don't know who the captain is. They don't even know if the captain's alive and they're just kind of doing it because they're just like, well, this is what we do. And it's a, this very surreal moment when, uh, you know, uh, the I can't remember the, the Martin Sheen's character's name is, is crossing over this bridge trying to find somebody to take a message for him or whatever and it's just like this this surreal craziness of what war does to people and that film is all about that and i think this film he you know leone is reaching beyond just telling this really fun story which he does really well but he is actually imbuing it with this element of what war does to people and yes we've got these three crazy uh characters as they cross this landscape, but as they cross this landscape, we're getting these, these bits and moments that are very touching.
0: The thing I think that's so special about the civil war in particular is it's the first film in the trilogy. Uh, well, it's the only film in the trilogy that gives you a very clear sense of historical context, right? The other films that we have are, you know, thugs gang versus gang set in a small, um, set in a small space of, of kind of the West, This film is it's epic in scope and what it touches across history. That we are here, we're in the United States, uh, and we are dealing with um, this period of time that was particularly impactful. And the fact that these guys keep trying to to put on the uniforms of the opposite or of the uh, of of one of the armies so that they can blend in and be able to make it across the country without being, um, you know, without being captured, but keep screwing it up. He's both part of the comedy of the film, but but also part of of the, the sort of the reality of the period that I think Leone is trying to to inject into the film. I really like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, all right. So in terms of the uh, you know the crew, Leone and um, uh, you know story and uh, screenplay, uh, Leone and crew. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, his his screenplay, I mean, Luciano Vincent Vincenzoni, one of the guys who helped him with the last one, helped him write this one, and I guess kind of came up with the idea and pitched it to United Artists when they were first coming over to uh, talk about taking these films over to the U.S. as kind of all three of them, and uh, you know they they Luciano had this idea of just these three guys pursuing some gold, and that was really all he had. And, and uh, United Artists liked it, and uh, they, they, <laughs> I have the idea for the poster already. <laughs> That's right. That's probably why it says five guys. They wrote the poster <laughs> before they before they even had a script. Um, but yeah, so he was uh, somebody who who um, worked with uh, Leone on this, and uh, you helped develop this great script and um he um then they had a few other people involved as well uh Agenori incroci and furio scarpelli and uh and then something that somebody that we haven't mentioned is mickey knox who is a very important uh part of the writing team for all these films because he is the one who actually took the italian script and uh, and figured out okay with all these different people speaking these different languages, I'm gonna to have to rewrite it based on kind of their lip movement. And so, and I didn't realize how compli- complicated this was, because it's not just a straight up translation that Mickey Knox did. He actually would try to look at what they said. Um, in whatever language they happen to be saying it, and try to translate that line into something that also kind of fit the lip movements. And that, you know, I, I, Mickey, I, I listened to something where he was talking about like this moment where the um, this, the guard who is um, making these prisoners play this this band this uh, band of prisoners um, while uh, Angel Eyes is torture is having uh, his his guy torture Tuco um, the gu- the guard says, um, you know, what does he say in the film now? I'm blanking. He says um, play place, uh, play, play uh, no, more more feeling is what he says. And, uh, but in the Italian, he doesn't say that. He he says something else like uh, uh, louder or something like that. But the way that his lips move, it didn't translate right. And, and because the, he's got, you know, too many lip movements going on for what he did. So Mickey Knox actually had to try to find the right way to do all this. And so it's interesting, I didn't realize that, but a lot of the, the, uh, the credit for some of the great translations and the way that the, 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 the story is told in English need to be credited to Mickey Knox.
0: You know, I, I had not, um, I didn't know anything of Mickey Knox. Um, you know, I'd obviously seen, um, seen films that he's been involved in, but uh, apparently uh, Quentin Tarantino's love for uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly goes deep into Mickey Knox territory named uh, Woody Harrelson's character. Mickey Knox and Natural Born Killers. There you Mickey go. Knox, there you go. A little bit of trivia.
1: Didn't know that's that. right. Yeah. And and he's somebody who, uh, I mean, he's passed away uh, la- just last just, year. Uh,
0: yeah, re- very recently.
1: But I mean, you know, he was uh, still acting in in the uh, all the way through the '90s, and and so I mean, he'd been in Godfather Part Three. He's just one of those people that had been around and yeah. still involved in a lot of projects. So. So it's definitely somebody to uh, mention. Uh, Another somebody to mention is that uh, Tonino Delicoli, a new cinematographer for uh, for Leone, he switched it up. And I believe that uh, Tonino ended up being his uh, cinematographer for the rest of his films after this. He kind of stuck with uh, Leone through the rest of it. And I really uh i think the look works um it, it you know it it works really well I mean, we've we've talked a bit about the camera work already but just something about the look of this i, I mean i think speaking specifically you know to one sequence the the desert sequence that mm-hmm. desert there's something about the look of that desert that just has this this uh you know dry i, I mean it's a dry desert of course it's going to look dry and barren but just the lighting of it and the way that they shot it emphasizes that to a way that um I think really works uh, very well in the film and um Leone had had um he was a fan of painters and uh, a lot of surrealist painters that he uh, really liked and actually kind of inspired the look of of that sequence and and of the whole film but I think that it's you know I can't get out of my head any of the shots where you see Eastwood uh, you crawling across the desert, and then you see uh, Eli coming up behind him on his horse with that pink parasol over his exactly. head. Exactly, And, uh, you know, it's just it's genius the way that it was written and the way it was uh, performed, but just the look of that also, it does have this very painterly look to it that I think is really powerful.
0: Oh, it absolutely is. And, and um, you know, it's interesting. How much credit do you think he gets versus uh, Leone uh, for this idea of... Um, Kind of the locked frame perspective. You know, the first time we talked about this, I think was um, was in uh, Spielberg, right? It was uh, in the Indiana Jones
1: mm-hmm. series, right? It was the whole uh, De Orle de la Seine, right?
0: yeah right the, the 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 world that is in that we see uh is all we get to know and so that's why the characters can be so wildly surprised when people who are just out of frame come into frame they should have seen them all along but oh my goodness um you know we now we get to be surprised uh, right. and that happens all the time in particularly this film i don't actually remember as much of it happening in the first two uh, but this film it it lends to that sort that sense of visual comedy uh that we have this the the frame uh you know suddenly oh my gosh there's a there are bandits that are all right around us why didn't we see them one foot ago um you know it, it it's it's worth a laugh but if you're not kind of in the spirit it could look really dumb
1: right exactly and it's it is very funny that's something that I definitely noticed uh rewatching this film is how um how often that happened in this in this one and i, I don't know i mean it's it's interesting does that come from the writers and the director or is that something that kind of the d p worked out with uh with him i mean it seems like it's a story thing, but clearly it was designed in the in the shooting of it yeah
0: that that's my uh that that was my that was my sense i don't know but it it's interesting to see you know just to see it used quite so fervently in this mm-hmm. film. So. Right, right. Anyhow, uh, he also did uh, Name of the Rose, Jean-Jacques Arnaud. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, yeah. that's a guy who really celebrates the burning of books. He makes <laughs> uh, he makes a burning library look really good. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, who else? Who else is on your mind?
1: Uh, you know, we talked about the, uh, the editing of this film, and we haven't really talked about the editing or the editors before, but um, the two editors... Eugenio Alabiso and and Nino Baragli. I don't know if I'm saying those completely (laughs) correct, but (laughs) I'm aiming for it. Uh, I think that together they do uh, an amazing job of cutting this film together. It's a long film, and there's a lot of uh, important edits that really uh, are key for the the telling of the story and we already i'm not going to go into it too much because we already talked at length about the editing of the that climactic uh that uh, trio uh you know gunfight but it, i think a lot of the credit goes to them for finding the right way to pace the editing within that sequence and the entire film to make it work so well
0: absolutely agree um and like you I don't want to to belabor that point but you're right that so much of that credit goes to goes to these guys and you know when you look at their credits um you know particularly this uh, Nina Barale is uh, I mean 200 films working with everybody from obviously Leone to uh, Fellini to Roberto Benini um in his uh, last film um, yeah it was it, it's uh, quite a uh, quite a catalog
1: it is definitely is mm-hmm. Um, Carlos Simi is back doing the uh, production design, and also on this one takes up the mantle for the costume design, and you know those two go uh, hand in hand so much in creating the overall look of this world. And I, you know, Carlos Simi has been working with uh, Leone on all of these films, and I, I, you know, I mean he, I think, is as much a part of creating this Western world that uh, as Leone is. I mean, so much of just like the the iconic things going on the the poncho that uh, Clint Eastwood wears just the, the way that Tuco has his gun on a string around his neck it, that he kind of tucks yeah. into his pocket I, there's so much of those things that are uh, kind of run through this film that uh, I think are integral and just like these, these ratty old towns that that they are all uh, going in and out of Carlos Simi, I think is a is a uh, definitely an, a key component to this uh, this film as well
0: well and once again you get this sense of, of growth and maturity in the look the film. I mean, this this is an order of magnitude larger in scope and scale and, uh, than for a few dollars more, and just as for a few dollars more was so much bigger than, uh, you know, Fistful of Dollars, and I, and I think that, you know, you see, it, it's really delightful to see him rise to the challenge and being able to outfit um, you know, outfit the the, uh, you know, the North and the South, right? Uh, these armies in a way that is, uh, that is authentic in Italy and, and Spain. And, and uh, uh, to put them in this, you know, I, I love that sequence when the, the, um, you know, they're, the, Tuco and and Blondie are dressed as Confederates, and then the, uh, uh, you know the the Northern Army rides down, but they look like the gray because they're covered in dust, uh, <laughs> right. and that's just such a wonderful reveal. You know, I think it's just in in terms of that, um, you know, the the production design. I think it's a really really nice touch. I think it's it's a a great great uh, title for him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and to that point, Leone uh, Leone does pull a lot of things uh, along with his team. They pull a lot of things from other films. You know, like that moment. I can't remember what film um, was directly referenced, but there was another film where it might be like uh, um, I want to say it's Buster Keaton's The General, uh, yeah, where they're right. they're so they're so dirty that he can't tell uh, that it's their other side, and then they dust off and he re- sees that it's oh, it's actually the other guys. Uh, you know, it's very clever, and but that's something that. Uh, you know, he does all through these films as he's pulling from his favorite westerns or just all these other famous films um, uh, to tell the story. And something else that we didn't mention is that Leone is very fascinated by the truth of the Civil War and the true story. And even though it's the story of these these you know three guys trying to find this gold, he really did try to set it in a realistic Civil War setting that happened in the Southwest. And a lot of people go, you know, the the Civil War was all kind of in the in the eastern half of the country. It never was really in the west. Well, there actually was a, a, a battle. It was Sibley. Uh, I think I don't know if he's a, a colonel or a general, but Sibley. Um, was over on in in Texas and New Mexico, and actually, that was kind of the person that Leone tapped into uh, to kind of have these these uh, make all these battles being uh, revolving around Sibley and his troops. Uh, which is which is interesting. It's nice to see that he was trying to kind of create something that was more realistic, even if it is a fictional version of the Civil War.
0: Right, right. Again, that gives us that that sense of context, both historical and cultural. Uh, that makes the film that much more resonant. I think, even though even though there are so many elements of the film that are over the top, uh, I- at least it finds its grounding uh, in those areas.
1: We haven't really talked about the title sequences in any of these films so much, but they're all just beautiful, beautiful title sequences. They all have kind of a, uh, a James Bond esque sort of quality uh, with this kind of uh, this great rock and roll kind of western score that Ennio Morricone does for each of them. Um, but Eugenio Lardani created the title sequences for the three films. And um, over at the Art of the Title, they, they talk about these films, but they actually have a little thing called a Festival of Titles, the Westerns of Eugenio Lardani, where you can watch his titles and, and kind of explore a little bit more about him and his title work for these films, I, I think that it's it is just as integral a part of these films as uh, you know so many other elements that we've already discussed. We uh, that's a link that we can also put in the show notes.
0: Yeah, I'm actually surprised we did talk about that last week. We talked about that one, particularly that that are the title thing. I can't. I'm checking. We we didn't actually put it in the notes because uh, mm-hmm. that was a good one.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Fistful of title. Yeah, I'll put that in right now. There you go.
1: There you go. Check that out. Internet movie firearm database. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to read through all of these. I mean, yeah, you know, we do we do have so many. You have Tuco going into a gun shop. <laughs> and yeah, the list is, I mean, they they list at least 21 different weapons that uh, are used in this film, everything from, you know, the Colt uh, 1851 Navy that uh, we've seen uh, Eastwood using in all the films to uh, to the the Gatling gun to the different cannons and howitzers to the uh you know, the, just, I mean, the the Victor Collette pepper box, you know, all these different <laughs> wild weapons that are, are seen throughout the film. It's a fantastic list of weapons and a lot of fun guns. I think if I had to go through all of them, uh, you don't ever see it used, but my favorite one that you, that you see in the film, and really it's just because it looks so stinking cool, it's, it's the... Um, uh, one of the guns that uh, Tuco is looking at is the is the Galland revolver. It's the one that kind of the 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 front piece kind of swings down and it pulls it open. Um, it's a really cool looking gun, but it actually was uh, uh, not invented until 1868. Of course, the film takes place in 1862, so it's anachronistic. But it does look really cool. And again, I'm not a gun guy. I don't. I just find these fascinating to to look at all these different guns. That's so awesome. we'll we'll put, we'll put that link in the show notes as well.
0: Absolutely, that's great. I I get uh, I I'm not a gun guy either, but I I do get sucked into this database now. Now that you've tricked me into
1: seeing it three weeks in a row. <laughs> That's right. <Wow. laughs> I glad it has worked.
0: You want to talk numbers?
1: This film uh, did really well. It uh, you know the, the consecutively they have uh, kept doing better and better, um, and so it's you know it's. It 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 worked well for Leone as he continued uh, making films, even though his output was relatively small over the course of his career. But uh, yeah, this film ended up. um, What did it cost? It was I I saw it was like one point two, one point three million, somewhere in that range, and it ended up. uh, and now it was a long film. Like we said, it was nearly three hours. So in the context of our profit per finished minute, that obviously affected it a little bit, but just domestically, at least what I've found now, this is a lifetime gross here in the U S it, it's grossed 25 million in the U S. And so, you know, that's, that's pretty good numbers for the number. I mean, it had a number of different releases and everything. Again, I couldn't find anything about the Italian numbers, um, but, you know, obviously we know that this film didn't do as well as for a few dollars more because for, like I said last week, for a few dollars more became the number one film, uh, highest grossing film in Italy until 1971. So this film didn't even knock that one off of its, uh, off of its uh, post there. But this film did well for itself and it ended up making about 900, adjusted profit per finished minute, about $932,000 per finished minute.
0: So not, uh, not slouchy.
1: Not too bad. Not yeah. too bad. I think they can pat themselves on the back for it.
0: But it does—it does make me feel just a little bit better that it didn't outdo the one that I like more.
1: Mm. Not quite. Just saying. That's right. All right.
0: Let's uh, let's rank it. Already head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you will be able to see all of our favorite films and those that are not our favorites. Stack them up. Let's see if this one is going to break the top uh, forty-two.
1: <laughs> Top forty-two. Let's see if it does. All right, the good, the bad, and the ugly, or the born supremacy.
0: Hmm. What an interesting uh thing that we seem to do every week. <laughs>
1: yes, indeed. I I would do the good, the bad, and the ugly. I
0: I would do the good, bad, and the ugly.
1: All right. uh How about? Oh, now this is an interesting one. I'm not sure how we're going to do this. The good, the bad, and the ugly, or for a few dollars more. For a few dollars more. <laughs> and see, I would say the good, the bad, and the ugly.
0: Oh man. Well, I, this is when we got a rock, paper, scissors.
1: We're gonna have to, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. One,
0: One two, two, three,
1: three. scissors. Dang. Yes. All right. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or No Country for Old Men.
0: Hmm. Um, I'm gonna say uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly
1: for me. Yeah, I I think I will too. Although God, it's No Country for Old Men, but I'm gonna say Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh. I'll give it that. Um, Oh, well, man. The good, the bad, the ugly, or Brazil? Oh,
0: awesome. I'm just going to sit back and watch the fireworks.
1: Well, I'm going to say Brazil. There's no fireworks on my end.
0: I actually will also say Brazil, so.
1: So there, all right. The good, the bad, and the ugly, or aliens? Aliens. Wow. hmm. All right, I'll go with aliens. The good, the bad, the ugly, or the Fisher King? Oh, Robin.
0: Are you going for the vote
1: of sadness? No, I've I, no, just it made me think of Robin. I'm going to go Fisher King, though. Not because of sadness. I just think I'm going to go that route. Uh, yeah, okay. But I, I could go either way, really. No,
0: I'm no, not. no. I'm, I'm going to go with the Fisher King, and I'm going to mean it.
1: Oh, okay. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly or The French Connection?
0: Uh, oh, The French Connection. I think I would do The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Really? Yeah. Like how much?
1: I think I would. I mean, <laughs> I'd, I'd put it on first. Really? Yeah.
0: What about picking your toes in Poughkeepsie?
1: Yeah, I know. Feet? I, I, I can be on the fence with this one.
0: I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really. I do love French Connection. I mean, by comparison.
1: All right. I'll give you French Connection All then. Right. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly or Fight Club? Fight Club. Oh wow!
0: Hands down, I I deeply all love right. Fight Club.
1: All right, all right, I'll give it to you. All right, look at that number nineteen. Oh, out of one forty-seven. Check it out, it made it into the top forty-two.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I like that. I feel good about that.
1: Yeah, I do too. I, I was hoping I, did. I was rooting for the top ten, but hey, you know, <laughs> top twenty, I'll live with that.
0: <laughs> it was all fraudulent anyway because I lost that first toss. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, so we've already I think we've already mentioned it where we're going from here next week right
1: yeah we're you know uh, for those of you who don't live in the United States next the first Monday of September is Labor Day here and so we thought we would time uh, Jason Reitman's Labor Day film to uh, match with uh, our Labor Day holiday and so next week we will be talking about Labor Day
0: do you uh, do you listen to uh, the Flophouse podcast I, I don't okay um, it's it's kind of it's pretty much like our show, except for it's only movies they hate that are really no. bad. And I when we first started talking about our Labor Day kind of holiday extravaganza, uh, it was just two weeks ago that that the flop house did Labor Day. Oh, that's funny. And um, I, I I just have to read just this is just to get ready to get ready. I'm just gonna read what they wrote on their site about Labor Day. No movie has sexualized pastry so much since American Pie. Yet somehow Labor Day is even less erotic than Jason Biggs, blank deep in apple filling. Wow. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have that to live up to, and I think I that was some so. of our comments of our own Film Board. Oh, A tube brute. <laughs> when we get comments like, so why'd you put Labor Day on the list?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I haven't seen it yet. So Me neither. I'm actually, Me
0: neither. I, it's a gamble.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it. Uh, you know, I have actually heard mixed things. I've I talked to some people who flat out love it, and they think that it was just a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And then uh, I, I would say that those are in the minority. I think most people I've talked to don't seem to have liked it. So I'm curious where we both end up landing.
0: Did they did they compare it at all to knowing? (laughs) You (laughs) funny,
1: (laughs) funny guy.
0: That's all I got, Andy. That's just all I got. I gotta go to bed.
1: Oh you lazy bum. I'm gonna go watch it again. Three more hours. (laughs)
0: doing a one star i mm-hmm. i could pick any one of these one stars uh are there different versions of this movie by Barbrae? what the heck was this mess a three-hour movie with no plot until over halfway through voiceovers like a godzilla movie and lame dialogue this must have been awesome for clint eastwood because he had about 10 minutes of dialogue in the whole movie my wife and i watched the whole movie just to see if the ending made it but nope we couldn't figure out why this movie was so popular. i The only thing I can come up with is the music. There's just nothing here. And it's so long and so boring. Ugh. Next time I'll watch Static for more entertainment. And scene. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Harsh. Voice aesthetic. over. Well, you know, dubbing. It's the dubbing. It's yeah, okay. the dubbing. Yeah, right. Some people, Andy, they're just not as civilized.
1: They're not. They What's, really aren't. That's yours. Mine is by Mr. Contrarian, who says, overrated, two stars. The good, stunning Blu-ray transfer, perfect casting and production design. The bad, the nature of greed, violence, and especially war are not fully explored. The ugly, too many similar smug macho confrontations, close-ups, and schemes. I finally realize Eastwood is never, quote, acting, as much as, quote, posturing while grunting out lines. And Tarantino is a shameless vulture.
0: Well, that's a different conversation. (laughs) Yes, but it's randomly (laughs) thrown in there at the end. (laughs) Some sinks are made of metal. (laughs) What? I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.